Welcome to Knowing Nature. I'm your host, Victor. In this podcast, I speak with environmental educators and people in the environmental sector about their perspectives on helping people to connect with the natural world. In this episode, I'm looking at the relevance of people's identity in environmental education and in science. This is in part because February is LGBTQ plus history month here in the UK, but also because I've been thinking a lot about representation in environmental education, a topic which has been on the back of my mind for some time. I mean, the importance of young people seeing themselves in a field is pretty well established as being a significant part of encouraging more diversity in that field. But being part of the queer alphabet soup community is to be part of a non-visible minority. So representation or being visible requires us to talk about it. Unfortunately, environmental education can suffer from the same problem as a lot of STEM subjects, which is a mistaken understanding of what objectivity means in practice. Often there's an impulse to stick to facts, figures, and measurement, and that means not talking about the person asking the questions and conducting the measurements. But of course, these are human choices, and they're affected by the identities of the human who makes them. In practice, objectivity should mean recognizing a person's perspective and taking steps to mitigate or balance any impacts this might have, kind of like wearing glasses to support vision. And most relevant to this series, focusing only on facts and figures also has the effect of erasing non-visible minorities from the picture. So over the next few episodes, I'll be exploring the relevance of LGBTQ plus identities in environmental education, beginning with this episode, where we'll be talking a bit about how cultural understandings of human sexuality have shaped the questions that we ask about reproduction and reproductive behavior in other animals, while also learning a bit about the mating habits of field crickets. So this episode forms a part of a series looking at LGBTQ plus identities in life science and environmental education. Today I'm speaking with Thomas Green, a PhD candidate with the Center of Biological Diversity at the University of St. Andrews, and we're going to be talking about animal reproduction and same-sex sexual behavior. So welcome to the show, Thomas. Hi, thank you for having me. Could you tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, maybe how you got into natural history? My name is Thomas Green. My pronouns are he, him, and they, them. I did my undergraduate in zoology. I actually originally wanted to get my undergraduate in physiology, but I took a a class on evolution um, in my second year in undergrad, and I loved it. I went to a Catholic school in America, and we weren't really taught about evolution. So it was something that I didn't realize that I loved so much. So I I switched my my direction um, and did the rest of my or my entire undergraduate degree in zoology. And I was lucky enough to get a good supervisor for my undergraduate thesis, where I did my thesis in same-sex sex, sexual behavior. So that encouraged me to get the PhD that I'm doing currently. What was it about the topic of same-sex sexual behavior that kind of that spoke to you? So when I first started it, it was a, a lot of queer anger um, at the the fact that this topic had been ignored essentially in my education, and that I had found out about it on my own. Um, and the fact that it was kind of treated as like a weird, like, attraction almost in animals. And I, I did it as that, and I didn't think I was going to go anywhere with it. Um, but then I actually started studying it, and animal sex is fascinating. So I, I love 
the entirety of animal sexual behavior in this specific area has been severely under-researched. So there's a lot of room for me to grow. And the PhD was just like another thing that I could do. I hope to go into academia in, in the end. So it was a, a stepping stone towards that. I mean, animal reproduction is such a fascinating topic because animals are so incredibly diverse. You know, there's like birds, earthworms, fish, sea spiders, all like physically look incredibly different. They live in really different places. They have really different survival strategies. But then that means that like their reproductive strategies are also all over the place. Then you've got animals that they exchange like sperm packets. You've got broadcast spawning and a lot of aquatic things where they just put the sperm and eggs out there and then let what happens happens. So a lot of reproduction does doesn't happen the way that humans go about doing it. So today we're talking a lot about same-sex sexual behavior. What does that actually mean? Like, does it have a specific, more technical definition that people should know about first? That is that is a good question because technically, same-sex sexual behavior can happen in plants. If a if a plant accidentally sends pollen to the wrong sex plant, that is technically same-sex sexual behavior. But when we talk about it in in the evolutionary terms of it, it is typically when mate choice is involved, when you are able to pick the other individual that you are mating with, that is when the behavior itself gets interesting. So that is in, in internal fertilization, like with humans, um, but there are toads that lay eggs, but also have same-sex sexual behavior that is still curious because it is it involves mate choice. That is the, the main sort of curiosity. And the difference in behaviors between male and female, there's typical expected behaviors of a male versus a female in a lot of species. And, and when an individual deviates from that, you kind of want to know why they, they do that. Animals are really diverse. So I'm thinking of the earthworm example that I had earlier, where they're, they're hermaphrodites. They both produce sperm and they both produce eggs. And I think generally they need, you need two of them to mate. So does that fall into same-sex sexual behavior as well? Technically, yes. It's not going to be researched on a behavioral level because it is the expected behavior of these animals and they literally cannot have different sex sexual behavior. It's all same sex sex. Um, so it is technically same sex sexual behavior if you want to go by the way the words mean, but it is typically ignored when talking about the evolution of the behavior. Something that often happens in environmental education is we we gloss over the kind of technical meanings, and then when you when you read reporting on something or read a piece of research, if you don't um, focus in on what the details actually mean, you can lose out on a lot of things. So it's thanks for giving us some of that. Um, right, so we've got a sense of what same sex sexual behavior means now. I understand that's been pretty well documented in a wide range of animal species. And I'm wondering if you have any favorites or maybe a particularly unexpected animal that this behavior has been seen in. I think my favorite is the whiptail lizard. There's a couple of different species of whiptail lizards and they are all entirely female. So they, they reproduce by parthenogenesis. So parthenogenesis is, it's not technically cloning, but it is reproducing with your own genetic material. Um, and only your own. There's a lot of cool stuff that happens with the eggs where there's there's a bunch of different ways it can happen, but essentially you are creating an offspring with your own genetic material and only that. And it is different than asexual reproduction because it is using typical sexual pathways of reproduction, but just with one individual. So with asexual reproduction, sorry, that's I'm I, I guess it would be something like 
um, like a hydra is a tiny, you know, pond animal where they just produce a, a bud off themselves and then like plonk off and it's kind of like a clone. Exactly. So with parthenogenesis, it's not that like, is there still sperm and egg involved? It's just all produced within the same individual? So that it's an egg. Sometimes it's two eggs that fuse together. Um, sometimes it's an egg that doesn't separate during meiosis. And so it is, it all, it is an egg, but it is an individual laying an egg that is then a new individual. So there's, there is still chance of genetic recombination. So you can still get new mutations within this population. It's just a bit harder without the sex with another individual. So they're not exactly clones either, um, like an asexual reproduction would be. But these lizards still have sex. They actually, they have a hormonal cycle, like a lot of other animals do. Um, and at different times during the cycle, they'll take different positions. So during like the, the estrogen low during the cycle, they will typically be on the top in the sex position, whereas if they have more estrogen, they will be on the bottom. So when they're closer to sex, when they're closer to being fertile and reproducing, they'll take the, the female associated position with lizards. I mean, they're all female. Do we know? Do we know like why they're all female? Like when I think of sea turtles, sex determination is associated with temperatures. So, is there something going on physiologically that means that these females they're all just egg producing, or the lizards only produce the eggs? Most parthenogenetic species they are typically facultatively parthenogenetic, which means that they can do parthenogenesis or they can do sexual reproduction the way we typically associate it. So with these um, entirely parthenogenetic species, they kind of just lost the males. The males didn't add enough benefit with their genetic material to, to continue reproducing the typical sexual way. So we, there are other species that can reproduce parthenogenetically, like snakes, it typically starts off as like a switching back and forth depending on the environmental conditions. And then the environmental conditions make sexual reproduction unnecessary. It, it wasn't that they switched from male to female. I think I should make this clear. It's they switched okay. from sexual reproduction with sperm and egg to just parthenogenetic reproduction. Aphids will do this too. They have different um, reproductive cycles where some of it is sexually reproduced. And then they have parthenogenetic reproduction where they switch back and forth between the types of reproduction, but they like they don't switch sex. Could you talk a bit more about the, this like aphid reproduction example? Like, could you walk us through in a bit more detail? Aphids are a pretty common catch when you go bug hunting with kids, so it's nice to have a little bag of factoids associated with them. From what I believe, it is that there are two different reproductive cycles. Um, one is during like a like a season that is better environmentally and that's when they reprodu reproduce sexually so it's there's more food around it's there's more water and then when it kind of gets to like a wintry type of season where it's it's a bit harder to survive it's sometimes easier to reproduce parthenogenetically so they have essentially two generations a year that switch off how they reproduce it's probably varies by aphid species as well right like some probably do it one way some do it different way I guess that's a bit, it's a riskier proposition in some ways. In order to reproduce, you have to find some other suitable individual and then mate with them. And then it makes sense that when, when it might be harder to find a mate, you can go this other route of like, right, I'm just going to reproduce on my own and just produce these almost like clone offspring for, well, in the case of aphids, like a few weeks or a few months until this, the conditions change. And then whoop, I'm going to flip back to doing it the other way around. 
You touched on this next question very briefly in in the introduction, where you got into this field of research from this queer anger, like why why isn't this talked about? Why isn't it there? A number of the papers that I've come across they point out that a lot of the research comes at it from, as you said, same sex sexual behavior is something that's kind of abnormal and needs to be explained in some way. Which, from from my perspective, and what a lot of these authors point out is this is this really heteronormative perspective, which until pretty recently has meant that a lot of other angles of investigation haven't really been explored. I'm wondering if that's something that you could talk a bit about. I mean, I think the reason that that this is even an area of research is very heteronormative, because there are so many non-reproductive sexual behaviors that happen. But this is the one that people are like, oh, it's an enigma. It's a paradox. And, and part of that comes from just the history of it. Um, and part of it is still the, the, the way we are perceiving sex as a society today. When in reality, animals don't have gay or bi or whatever. They just, in, in mammals, sex feels good. So the more sex you have, the better you feel. Looking at it as something that is like a conundrum kind of makes you expect a negative reason for it to exist. You can't, you can't, imagine it having an adapt reason to exist or a non-adaptive just like neutral presence in a society um, or society as in like a group of animals so it kind of it impacts the way we are looking and the way we define sex as well because you find same-sex sexual behaviors that aren't expressed in different sex interactions and those are almost completely ignored all because people expect same-sex sex to just be different sex sex, but between individuals of the same sex. So the impacts of the way we look at our own sex lives impacts this from like the smallest data point to like the theories that we make on why it exists, because we have this idea of homosexual versus heterosexual. And those are the only options. Something that I came across that you've kind of touched on is this idea that there's something that it's costly, you know, it's a negative thing to have these same-sex sexual behaviors because it's an opportunity to reproduce that is lost or gone. And a lot of the papers seem to approach it from that kind of a direction and that I don't know. Reading into it, it's it's something that I've been in in thinking about this whole topic of LGBTQ plus identity or identity in general and research, um, particularly in natural history, is that we want to read ourselves in the natural world, or we want to look to the natural world as something we associate natural with being with good, right? This is the way things ought to be because it's not clouded by human cultural whatever. It's just out there. It's natural. It's how animals do it, and so. When it, the research is approached from this perspective of these behaviors don't lead to or cannot lead to reproduction, um, so therefore it must be it's bad, right? And there's this tendency to want to take that sense and then apply it into humans, and then I, I think that can be quite detrimental as well. I, I don't know if that's something that you've you've felt in this field generally. Yeah, for sure. The whole argument of natural versus unnatural, I could talk about for hours without even bringing up scientific evidence, uh, because it is, I mean, it's absurd. No other animal wears shoes, but we don't say that it's unnatural to wear shoes and we shouldn't do it. It also doesn't matter what animals do. Like, we're not, I'm, I would never use 
the fact that animals have same-sex sex as a way to, like, excuse being gay, because being gay doesn't need an excuse. Nobody's being hurt. And so that is also another sort of approach that I've seen sometimes in, in a lot of research is, like, this is why animals are gay, and this is it also animal animals aren't gay, but this is why animals do this. And so that means that it's okay for us to do it because it's a natural thing, but the nature of it doesn't matter. Um, we're also, humans are animals. Everything we do is technically natural. It's an unsupported argument that has a lot of underlying problems to it that won't be addressed by, by proof. That's one theme into this res- in, in the field of animal reproduction and sexual behavior is uh, this theme of like looking at the same sex behavior and trying to explain like why does it happen? Why doesn't it disappear? I'm wondering if you could just give us an overview to some of the like themes or the big areas of research in animal reproduction at, at the moment. Um, I know quite a few people who are looking at sexual selection, um, which is is kind of the idea that evolution happens by who animals choose to mate with. Um, that is a very interesting area of research is kind of why we think that birds have such like strange tails and stuff is because of sexual selection interactions. Um, also, one thing that I have come across a lot in my research and that maybe isn't necessarily looked at as much as it could be is female choice. Because sexual selection is a lot of times thought of as the male fights for the right to have sex with the female or something along those lines. Recently, I read, I was reading a paper today that described mating as it happens when the female gives up being unreceptive before the male um, gives up courting. So (laughs) female choice is very frequently ignored in a lot of descriptions of mating behaviors and also just in a lot of like study of the behavior itself. Um, and I think it is getting more weight in the evolutionary. Let's get into um, some of your research, I guess. So could you tell us a bit about your research topic in particular? Right. So my PhD is looking at the evolutionary history of same-sex sexual behavior. So I'm, I'm looking at mammals, birds, and insects. Um, very broadly, and doing sort of a comparison of same sex and different sex sexual behaviors, and looking at it as like a, a phylogenetic tree of all the species we know do this, and hopefully finding connections and how many times has this behavior evolved? Can we figure out is it a good thing to have, or is it just a behavior that's associated with something else that's good, so it kind of gets dragged along? That is the majority of the work I'm doing. I also am working with crickets, though, and doing a comparison of aggressive versus courtship behaviors between males um, across nine different species of crickets um, and kind of looking at what species has more aggression. Does aggression only ever lead to courtship? Does courtship ever lead to aggression? What sort of circumstances cause courtship to happen over aggression? Stuff like that. I guess let's um, talk about the first one first, the broader phylogenetic comparison. It relates to something that we talked about a little bit earlier, where there's this idea that you know because same-sex sexual behavior doesn't lead to reproduction, then um, it should be less likely for that behavior to be passed on to subsequent generations right so the i guess the question that appears in a lot of the research is like how is it still present if in theory if it's something that should have been 
it's it, it's a characteristic or a feature that should have been um, dropped because it doesn't convey a reproductive advantage. I'm not necessarily looking for why it did or didn't happen as my first point of interest. It is more when did it happen so that we can kind of figure out if this is something that has evolved once when we had when when sexual reproduction first evolved that means something different evolutionarily than if it evolved four or five different times and somehow has been conserved four or five different times it's like flight has evolved four separate times and and that means that there's different benefits to flight but a lot of the mechanics are the same so trying to find not the well the origins or the place of origin the time of origin for these behaviors might give more insight into how it evolves and is it a specific like trait that in itself is adaptive or is it just something that happens that isn't bad so it continues to be present because it's it's not being selected against or is it something that is maladaptive and it's just associated with something that is also very good so it isn't bad enough mm-hmm. to be taken away. And the other interesting part of this this broad thing is so far, when looking for same-sex sexual behavior, we haven't not found it. When we look for it, we tend to find it. So that means that it happens a lot more than, than we think it does. I, I, I don't want to say that there's a good reason for it because that is a very, it's not a very scientific way to say it. That's the tricky thing about evolution is there doesn't need to be a point to a feature, right? A feature doesn't need to do anything for it to be passed on. That's something that we, it's easy for us to like map that value onto it, but animals and biology and what's out there, they don't know good or bad. It's just kind of life happens. And if it continues to happen to the point at which you can reproduce, like great. <laughs> but a particular feature doesn't need to have particularly contributed to that. So you you can't, as you said, you can end up with these neutral features that don't really do anything. They just get carried on. Uh, Richard Dawkins' book, The The Ancestor's Tale, or The Selfish Gene. Well, I'm sure he brings up this point in many of these books that mammals have lots of features that aren't particularly good. They just kind of happened by chance. There is a nerve that all mammals share, which travels from the brain down and loops under the aorta and then back up to the larynx or, or the voice box. So in giraffes, this means it goes all the way down the neck and then back up again, which doesn't seem particularly efficient, but it isn't inefficient or detrimental enough to affect survival. And it's an example of how evolution is sort of the aggregate of random chance. I think the big thing with this is there is no evolutionary ideal creature because evolution happens by random mutations that build on each other. So if a new feature, a new trait is introduced to a species, it is because it is randomly occurring. Mm-hmm. You don't get to pick, oh, this, we need this now. We need this trait now to survive. This is the ideal trait to have. It is an individual randomly got a trait that is somehow better than the other traits that exist. Yeah. And by better, we mean more adaptive, right? Or like yes. better adapted to whatever the particular circumstance is, not mm-hmm. not good Fitness or bad. Increasing. There we go. That's a good way of putting it. <laughs> Again, the importance of using that technical language because it's when you bring in words like good or bad, which probably we should have been more careful of, it has other connotations, even if we don't yes. don't want, want, want to have those. We're mentioning at the beginning, the important thing here is that a trait or a characteristic just needs to be passed on. So some kind of reproduction needs to happen. But as we mentioned, animal reproduction is incredibly diverse and sexual reproduction is not the end all and be all. 
And so uh, just how broad, I mean, you've mentioned that when we look for it, we find it and we've, we've brought up insects. So aphids, we've brought up uh, whiptail lizards, which are reptiles. We know what happens in mammals, like just how broad is same-sex sexual behavior? So I cannot speak to how broad it is because there are places we haven't looked, but I do I, I have this master Excel spreadsheet that has all of the species that I've found so far. And there's there's an octopus species on there. There's a, a couple fish species. Um, the Amazon molly does parthenogenesis in a very interesting way as well. Um, and they have same-sex sexual behavior. The most recorded group with this is insects. Oh, wow. I didn't even think, it just hadn't crossed my mind as a thing, which is, again, I guess it's that's that heteronormative perspective. I just assumed, you know, it's just, I didn't even ask the question of whether same-sex sexual behavior happens in insects. I think we assume that insects are so much more simple than, than vertebrates could, um, so they couldn't potentially have anything fun going on. But it's <laughs> insect reproduction itself in, is fascinating. Even if you aren't looking at the same sex stuff, insect reproduction is insane. Back to the other species that we found. It, I mean, it's all over the animal, the mammals and birds. Weirdly, in specific species of birds, you'll actually find pair bonding, but in groups of three. So you get a bunch of different kinds of stuff as well. When you get to vertebrates that tend to have more sex-based behaviors that aren't necessarily strictly sex. There's a species of parasite acanthocephalins that are known to have male-male sex. That is a specific like competition thing where after the sex, one of them essentially like cements the other one to a point where they can't reproduce anymore. So they're like eliminating the competition. Cool. Uh, what is acanthocephalins? It sounds like- It is a, a parasite, a parasitic worm. They are microscopic. I'm trying to picture the researcher who did that and just like- did that piece of research, like looking down a microscope at these tiny worms and just watching what they're doing. That would, yeah, that is. It's quite a project <laughs> to undertake. Yes. Uh, so, so you're looking at how broadly these behaviors are kind of present, and then what's the process then? So, what I am planning on doing currently, this depends on a lot of things, like how my data looks at the end of it. But um, I'm going to be compiling a very big phylogenetic tree. Um, from current trees that have already been made, trying to find the most accurate representation that we cur currently have of the evolutionary history of all of these animals and until they get to the newest common ancestor. I'll do one for each group of mammals, birds, and insects. And then I will assign a value. It sounds very unscientific, but there will be a scientific way of approaching it. But I will create a way of valuing these things by numbers and... Um, essentially map them along the tree and then you can do some fun calculations. I'm saying fun because I'm not looking forward to doing it, but I know I have to. Um, that will essentially like look at similarities across the tree and then kind of help you track the evolutionary history. It's called character trait mapping. You, you don't want to use it to, to construct a phylogenetic tree, but if you're doing it on top of a, a pre-existing phylogenetic tree, you get some pretty accurate ideas of where things happened and when things changed within a behavior or another trait. It's a bit harder with a behavior because it's not so easy to quantify, but if you go like average percentage of sexual interactions that are same sex, then it's a bit easier to add. Usually when we think of phylogenetic trees, 
And what a lot of people will think about with those is either genetic relationships or the, I guess, kind of old school way of thinking about it was physical characteristics. You'd look at this particular bone first appeared in this animal, and then you can kind of trace how that bone like changed and varied as it moved into different um, animal groups. With physical characteristics, it leaves a trace in the fossil record. Is that going to be a bit of a stumbling block because you're looking at a behavior where it's not going to have a fossil record? So because I'm not creating the phylogenetic tree, it shouldn't be too much of a problem. I don't know the ancestral states, but that is what the calculations that I'm hoping to do will, will give to me, is if I look at the variations, I'll be able to get what the ancestral states look like. Okay, so that's how you're... I guess sidestepping the thing, the fact that you're looking at behaviors which aren't going to have a fossil record, you're, you're using that, what we've pieced together from that, and you're mapping the behavior onto that existing tree and I guess doing kind of like a backwards prediction of what would it maybe have looked like. Exactly. Yes. Now, your other project has to do with crickets. Could you tell us a little bit about that project? Yeah, sure. So I didn't expect this to be a project that I was doing. My supervisor works with crickets and he had these videos and he was like, do you want to watch these these videos? And at first I was like, no, I don't want to watch 1,000 10-minute long videos of crickets. But then I kind of thought about the, the cool data that could be gotten from it. And I was like, oh, well, maybe. And so essentially I, I made an ethogram, a description of cricket behaviors that are expected. Um, and I, I, I'm currently going through every video and writing down which behaviors happen um, and in which, what, what order, how long they happen for, which cricket does it, because each, each video is two crickets for 10 minutes. And so it's really interesting because, I mean, a lot of it is aggression because when males get to realize that there's another male in their area, they sometimes will feel threatened. And so they'll, there's aggression. Um, but the sexual behaviors are so, they're so fun to watch, mostly just because I think crickets have the best butts. And, and cricket courtship is very butt heavy. So it's an, an example of a courtship behavior that you wouldn't see in different sex connotations when both... Can you describe a cricket butt for, for us? A cricket butt? Yes. <laughs> okay, so they have they have the abdomen that's quite long, and their legs are... They've got the big, like, jumping legs at the back, mm -hmm. and then their wings on top. And so you don't always get to see their butts. But when they're courting, the males will evert the tip of their abdomen, which means they stick their little butt up. And it's 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 like a pinky finger in shape. And then they kind of just tip it up a little bit. And then part of their courtship dance is they move around and shake back and forth to get the attention of the potential mate. So they're just shaking their little butts, like <laughs> trying to have sex. Cricket butts look very wriggly and they have two little, they're called Circe. They're like butt antenna. They're very sensitive. They're for feeling. Um, just little pointers sticking out of their butt that kind of wiggle around sometimes. 
um, especially when they're trying to find a mate. So they're just very dancey little animals. So a lot of this courtship behavior was described in different sex crickets years, decades ago. Um, and that is, those are the names that I'm going with. So there's courtship song and courtship posturing, which is the little dance with the butt out. But there is a behavior that I have seen in the male crickets that we haven't seen in female male interactions. Um, and I have started calling it booty bumping. Um, will that make it to a journal? I don't know, but it will always be booty bumping in my heart. Um, and it's basically where the two male crickets are both courtship posturing at the same time but it is a lot more forceful than the original like than what you would expect from courtship posturing so they are pushing their little butts together and like I, I don't want to say the word aggressively because aggressive is the other thing that I'm looking at but it is there is some force involved in the way that they are pushing their butts together and and so they're they're like butt to bat butt doing this yes and so in in traditional field cricket mating, which is the type of cricket that I'm looking at, the female is on top of the male and the male kind of hooks his whole deal up into the female. And so they would never be butt to butt in male-female interactions. Um, and also females don't have the ability to sing in crickets. So you wouldn't get courtship song or courtship posturing typically from a female. So this is a particular type of behavior that you only see in these male-male interactions. Does, does it occur when you've got like a male-female interaction? No. Part of the thing about courtship in crickets is their their butt is, I don't want to say their butt is very tender. That's where they keep all of their, their reproductive organs. Yeah. So they pre they're presenting that to the front of the female. And if the female doesn't want that, she might bite him. And so, you know, that's not the best. So they don't tend to be overly pushy they're just more constant like the courtship song can go on for a while with crickets with the crickets that i'm looking at i don't want to say that for all crickets because i'm not a cricket expert i guess we should have talked about male female cricket courtship like what does that normally look like and i guess you've described it a little bit so he, he presents the tip of his abdomen his butt to the female's face for her to make a decision on but in when you've got a male male kind of interaction if there's this courting kind of going on the way in which a male courts is presents his butt to the other cricket and so right. when you've got two males they end up with these two abdomen tips like facing each other and then i should clarify as well that a lot of the times the male male courtship is very one-sided and this is what happens when it's not so male male courtship isn't the most common um it is it's not uncommon. The word common doesn't really mean anything, but um, it's not as frequent as different sex sex is. And the behavior that I'm seeing with the, the booty bumping is even less um, frequent. So it, it's not a, it happens all the time sort of thing. I've seen it, I think two or three times. And I guess we should have done this as well. What does aggressive cricket behavior look like? So crickets have aggressive song as well. That is very hard to tell apart from courtship song until you get used to it. And it differs with every species, the way their songs go. So they have their aggressive song and then they have antenna lashing, which is they kind of like hit their antenna against the other individual very quickly. Um, because if you, if a cricket contacts another cricket with their antenna, they get a lot of information about that cricket. They can tell about like their sex based on their pheromones and stuff. And so Internal contact isn't necessarily aggressive, but rapid like hitting is. Um, and then you have mandible opening, 
which is they start to try and bite or they do bite. Sometimes you'll get two crickets who kind of lock in their mandibles together. And the way that ends is one of them gets like flipped over or thrown and you get tremulation as well, which is they just kind of shake a little bit. I don't want to call it a little wiggle because it's aggressive and a little wiggle is not necessarily (laughs) the most aggressive term, but that is the best way to describe it is they kind of just stop, stop what they're doing, keep all of their feet on the, or all of their tarsi, all their toes on the ground essentially, and then push their body back and forth up and down, not up and down, but like. Head to butt, back and forth kind of thing. So when in the wild would they display this kind of aggressive behavior? Crickets also have another kind of song called calling song, which is to attract females. Um, But sometimes another male cricket will try to find the calling cricket to kind of intercept other females in the area if they know that females will be going there. Um, And so sometimes a male cricket will interact with another male cricket and it's a immediately like a territorial threat. So that is sort of where the aggression starts. Once once an individual male cricket recognizes the presence of another male cricket, they kind of will get protective of their territory and the females that might come to it. So with that, with that particular project, what's the I guess question that you're trying to answer or is it is it primary research you're just kind of cataloging the the behavior? One of the things is of course just comparing aggression versus courtship, and also indirect genetic effects, which is the way an individual reacts to the presence of another individual. It's typically associated with behavior, the term indirect genetic effect. So like, does the size of the individual you're interacting with tend to influence whether you decide to go courtship or aggression? And does that impact things? How does that change across these different species that I'm looking at? Do these species ever go from courtship to aggression? Is it is it like a, a stress relief thing almost, which is one of the hypotheses for SSB is, or same-sex sexual behavior, which is SSB. One of the hypotheses for it is a, is a social lubricant. It kind of calms everybody down. It's a very vague question, but I need to wait till I get my data to see. You've talked about how queer identity kind of got you into um natural history and evolution in, in particular, has has that identity kind of affected the way in which you have been approaching these two research projects or the way in which you've read the existing research that's out there? Like how, how has it been affecting um, just you as a, as a PhD student, like going about being a PhD student? Uh, that is a good question that I'm still, still figuring out, but I'll, I'll say the big thing that has kind of come from my queer identity specifically and kind of reflected the way I interpret science is the idea of labels because I don't know how much experience you have with this, but like trying to find a a label for yourself is always difficult. Um, It's something that I kind of gave up on because I'd found that when I was trying to label myself, I was trying to make myself fit those labels and they never fit the way that I wanted them to. So I kind of just, stopped and did what I wanted. And the thing with science is labels are still important and definitions are important. We, we've kind of mentioned this, is, is the, the way you talk about science is very important. Um, but keeping in mind that these definitions are human-made. So, so the idea of how same-sex sexual behavior, we only look at it in, in species with mostly internal fertilization or with mate choice, where that is something that happens. And 
this idea that same-sex sexual behavior is different than any other non-reproductive sexual behavior is completely like human-made. It's it's come up out of our own minds and realizing that and still kind of being okay with doing the research that I'm doing has been an interesting journey because the reason that this matters is it it's cool, I guess, but like not in the way that I originally thought it was. And even even labels of like male and female, those seem pretty straightforward. And a lot of research is based on the idea that it's just those two. And that is absolutely not true. It's a spectrum from male to female, female to male. And ignoring that kind of causes you to think that science is telling you something when it's really not. Yeah, it's it's that thing that we, I guess we touched on a little bit earlier, that we have this tendency to map human, like social cultural values onto non-human things. And that that isn't necessarily a good or productive thing to do. And the example that I keep thinking about is like bees, because you've got, I mean, you think male and female bees, but actually there's more than one kind of female bee, right? You've got the reproductive queen bees, and then you've got all these non-reproductive worker bees. So when you look at these categories of male and female in in a very simplified context like that, how useful is that? Like you've got these two different kinds of female that do these different things. So what are the actual characteristics that we're using female to be a shorthand for? Because I think that's that's the thing that we use all these labels for is we use it as a shorthand for a constellation of characteristics. And then don't mention anything about how those characteristics can vary, even within what cl- classifies as a female. I have I have a literature review coming up, um, and so I've spent quite a bit of time reading very very old papers, and they are they are tough. So it is it's very hard to say that I want to do what we've been doing already in this area because a lot of it has been driven by homophobia or or even just with underlying homophobia in it. I read a paper on the uh, sexual abhorrences of ostriches. Sometimes the language is very loaded in old school yeah. papers. Yeah. yeah, this is from like the 70s, 80s. It's hard to say that I want to do how we've been doing it. I think I think a lot of more modern papers are presenting data in a less biased way, and that is good. I think also I am inherently taking a more unique approach because I'm going so broad, which is something that hasn't really been done before. It's been done in birds and it's been done in arachnids and insects together Mm -hmm. but this sort of like phylogenetic comparative approach is already a new aspect of it the question i kind of want to ask is do you think that other researchers or researchers in the past would have looked at that historical literature and noticed that and noticed that the perspective that it was coming from was problematic when i stop expecting things to be awful to read is like mid 90s and so after that there is a lot of not a lot of there is acknowledgement of the history of the study there was a book published in 1999 that really addresses a lot of the issues it's a it's a great book um biological diversity no nope. biological exuberance very good since that time a lot of the research has actually been kind of making up for it it is it is currently moving forward yeah, for sure. What is it about that transition area in the papers that moves it from being something that's been awful to read to something that's um, been, I guess, nicer to read? Is it is it to do with the like loaded language that's used, or that is a part of it? And also, 
I mean, I'm still reading more modern papers that call same-sex sexual behavior an enigma. And I mean, I did it in my undergraduate thesis. Um, so there is, there is still some stuff that is like not the best, but, um, at the same time, these papers will generally report everything they find with like a even tone and not try to find a fault for it. Essentially, that's, that's a lot of what I look at is, is, are we trying to make same sex sexual behavior the fault of something? Are we trying to excuse it by putting the blame on something else? Um, and a lot of the papers kind of stop doing that. Mm-hmm. But I, I will say, I feel like this has been kind of critical. And I'm very aware that I, I sometimes come off as very critical of this field, even though it is growing. We are learning from our past mistakes. And a lot of the research that is being done now is very interesting um, and is done with consideration for the history. Thank you very much, Thomas, for for coming on to the show again. It's been it's been really great talking to you. We've covered like a lot of ground, but it's been really fascinating to to hear about what's going on in some of the biological sciences. This podcast has a very education heavy focus, but it's nice to get a bit of that background knowledge so that us as communicators and educators can have a sense of what's going on behind the research that we then communicate out. Like, it's good to have that inside perspective. So thanks for, for taking the time. Thanks again for having me.